Welcome to the One Life Maps podcast. Here's your host and co-author of Listen to My Life, maps for recognizing and responding to God in my story, Sharon Swing. Greetings, everyone. We're so glad you've joined us for another episode of the One Life Maps podcast. Today, I have a very special guest with me, my friend, Louis Dooley. Louis has been a part of my husband's small group for a long time, and that's how we met. And he's the author of a book called Prison Saved My Life. I recommend it for everyone. Now, if that's not a provocative enough topic for you, just wait till you hear a piece of Lewis's story. Welcome, Lewis. We're so glad you joined us today. How you doing very much? I mean, how are you doing? Uh, it's a blessing to be here today, and uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. What's the name of your ministry, Lewis? Well, the ministry we're with is called Emmaus Worldwide, and uh, it's not just a prison ministry. It's a worldwide ministry, and my wife, Julie, and I uh, kind of represent their prison um, arm, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so... Before we get into the prison stories, I'd love to just ask you um, about the spiritual upbringing of your youth. How would you describe spiritual climate of your family and your surroundings? Yeah, non-existent. <laughs> it was non-existent. Never went to church. Uh, my family didn't. I didn't. Never talked about God or anything. Did you have a concept that there was or wasn't a God? Um, I kind of, I knew people believed in a God, but I had no clue who this person was. And so I never interacted with them. They, the, this guy never talked to me or did anything for me or to me as far as I knew. So it was kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a different question about um, when has God been particularly tangibly present in your life? What wow. comes to mind? Yeah, when I went to go kill a guy, uh, that was the, my first, like, wow. Well, I've like, never had anybody answer the question that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure there's people that can attest to that. Um, probably not many, but, yeah, it was when I went to go kill a guy, that's when I feel like God, for the first time that I could see, had kind of, like, stepped into my life and, like, did something. And so what? how did you know? Well, um, I had been plotting um, to go take this guy's life. We were in jail and he had given me uh, some items that I didn't have. And I thought he was trying to make a move on me. So I went to go kill him. And so I was kind of stalking his cell, waiting to the you know most opportune time. And when that time came, when, when I thought everyone was asleep and he was just in his cell by himself, when I rushed into his cell, him and two other guys were in there. And so I was like, man, where did these two other guys come from? And they were like guys that were in jail too. So they weren't like angels or some mysterious people. But man, I can tell you to this day, I don't know how they got in that cell because I was watching like a hawk. <laughs> that is so interesting. So what did that, what did that feel like? Or how, did you interpret that later as God's intervention? Or did something just, did, did you have a realization of some sort? Yeah, that came years later, just as me kind of going back in time and thinking about that encounter and, and the things that I knew to be true versus the things that were true and how those differed in several different ways that it finally dawned on me like, wow, man, like in probably some like supernatural way, either like God allowed me to be blinded to those guys going in or, or I was distracted enough for them to get in, uh, with which point 
I can't believe that's the case because I was watching like a hawk. But in some weird way that's unexplainable to me, God had done something. Okay, so how long had you been in prison at this point in time? My first day in jail. Okay, and what brought you there? I uh, got into a shootout with a person and he got shot up and I didn't. And I got convicted of shooting him and sentenced to life and 100 years in prison. And so that's why I was there. And just so you know, Lewis is not talking to me from prison at this point in time. So that's, that's cool. another part of the story. <laughs> Amen. So you arrive in prison the first day. You're immediately on the defensive, clearly. Yep. And so tell us the story about what did this guy do that, that prompted you to think you needed to kill him? Yeah, well, I had went to trial for three days. And that third day, I got found guilty. And so they handcuffed me and they put me in a jail cell. Uh, with a bunch of guys who were awaiting to go to trial. So they were technically what is called detainees. They were innocent until proven guilty. And so I went into that area and I found an empty bunk bed and sat down. And this guy brought me a box full of stuff that I didn't have, like snacks and socks and T-shirts and stuff like that. And just because of where I'm from, like people don't give you something for nothing. And I had friends that had been in and out of prison um, several times. And, you know, we talked about stories and the kind of what to do's and what not to do's. And, you know, just being a street guy, plus talking to guys that had done time, it was like, man, ain't nobody in there trying to be your friend. And if anybody's showing any type of friendliness to you, there's definitely an ulterior motive. And so that guy dropping those gifts off and leaving, I thought, hey, here we go. Already first day, haven't been in here a good maybe 10 or 15 minutes yet. And already somebody's targeting me. And so I felt that I needed to like make an example out of this guy because I had life in a hundred years and it's like, you, you know, I'm going to be here forever. So I don't want to have to keep dealing with situations like this. So if I can nip this in the bud now, then maybe it would alleviate these types of problems in the future. Mm. So you make your way to this guy's cell and what do you find? I, I, well, I got my back against the wall and took a deep breath because I'm like, man, I've never like tried to kill a guy with my bare hands before. Um, and so I took a deep breath and I rushed in the cell. And when I got in there, the guy I went to get and these two other guys, they were all in there and they each had a Bible and the guy I went to get, he was actually reading out loud. And so they were, I didn't know it then, but later on I understood they were having Bible study. So what happened there? I just stopped dead in my tracks because I was startled that these other guys were in there. And so I stopped and the guy continued to read. And at one point he stopped and turned and looked at me and he asked me if I believed in God. And I told him, no, I believed in evolution. And he handed me a little pamphlet, uh, better known as a Bible track. And they all looked at me kind of as if to say with their body language in their eyes, like, okay, you can leave now. Or at least that's how I took it. So during that short little maybe two or three minutes of me being in there and him reading and asking me that question, all of the anxiety and the adrenaline and all these emotions that were going through my body had kind of subsided. And I was just like, okay. So I turned and left and walked back to my bunk and sat down and just thought I couldn't even get this right. Like I couldn't get life right on the outside so much so that now I'm spending the rest of my life in prison. And now to hopefully alleviate me from, you know, being raped or being murdered, you know, I need to make an example out of someone. I can't even get that right. So my only other alternative thought was to take my own life. 
So what happened with that track? Well, I started reading it and uh, talked about, it started off with Genesis talking about the creation of the world and how God created everything. And he, you know, mankind is a part of everything and um, talked about Eve being created and God basically, you know, kind of giving them one rule not to eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it talked about them eating of that fruit of that tree. And then it had a Bible verse in Romans three twenty three. Um, you know, that says for all that have sinned and, and uh, can't live up to the glory of God. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, all have sinned. And I was like, man, that's everybody. I was like, I'm probably, I'm a sinner, but probably not everybody. And um, it listed some sins. It listed murder, theft, rape, uh, lying, disobeying parents. And I was like, wow, like everybody's told a lie before. And if not, everybody surely has disrespected their parents. And if this is true, then everybody is a sinner. And then it had another verse in Romans chapter six, verse 23, that said the wages of sin is death. And so it explained what that meant, that it wasn't talking about a physical death as much as it was talking about an eternal separation from God. And that's when it started talking about heaven and hell. And I had heard of these terms before, but really knew nothing of them. Um, but then it talked about in the rest of the verse, um, the ways of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I never heard of Jesus Christ before. It talked about him and how he came about through being born of a virgin, um, about because of that, that enabled him to be born with God's nature and not human nature, which is full of sin, and that he would come specifically to die for everybody's sins so that they wouldn't have to be eternally separated from God and that he rose again. And, you know, I heard of Easter. I heard of Christmas. I didn't know Christmas was like the birth of this man named Jesus. And I didn't know Easter was about this man being resurrected. I just thought it was a Santa Claus and the Easter bunny. And so I'm hearing this stuff, reading this stuff for the first time. And I'm like, wow, like this is really interesting. And, and I believe the Holy Spirit was really convicting my heart because, you know, I realized before reading this that I had made a lot of poor choices but I didn't understand how that affected the people other than my primary victims. Like I knew shooting people and selling drugs affected people that I shot at and sold drugs to. I hadn't even yet come to the realization that my family were even victims, but I definitely didn't even think about how that there was a God that existed, that I was actually, these things I was doing was offending him and disrespecting him. And so that being new information for me really made me stop and think, um, for a minute at like all the stuff I had been doing with my life. But then it quickly started talking about there being an opportunity for my sins to be forgiven and that I didn't have to be the person that I was, that I could be a new creation and that, that this guy Jesus came and died so I could have a new life. And I was like, you know what? I want that. Like I want a new life because the old life that I have is, is garbage, is trash and is of no use anymore, but I'm still alive. And so I decided that I wanted to give this new life a try that God was supposedly offering to me through Jesus Christ. Hmm. How old were you? 19. 19 years old facing life plus a hundred years. Yep. Well, so I'm, I'm glad you kept reading <laughs> to the end of that. Yeah. Well, I was, trip. I was wide awake. It was probably, I don't know, one, two, three in the morning and, I had nothing else to read, nothing else to do. 
So, so do you so do you remember responding to that? Yeah, I remember there was like a sinner's prayer on the back. Um, I remember getting on my knees. And the other kind of cool thing during that time was that the whole unit that I was in was all really dark, but I was like the only bunk bed that was open was a single bed. So it had no top bunk. And it was right next to these bars next to an area that's called a catwalk. And that was kind of where the officers could walk around the dorm without being inside and see and hear what was going on. And on that one side of the catwalk where I was, there was the only light that was right there. So otherwise I wouldn't have been able to even see to read this thing. And it was just the perfect vision of like, if you can picture somebody laying in a bed next to some big thick bars with the damn light, you know, within a couple feet of it and a little bit of light showing in for me to be able to read this Bible track. Mm. That's a pretty strong visual laying in the dark in prison with one light. Yeah, it's like God gave me a flashlight. <laughs> read the Bible track. Do you remember what it was like for you? What did it feel like for you after you prayed that prayer or during that prayer? And that's a really good question. I don't know how much I've really thought about that. Um, I would say definitely I felt um, a sense of relief. Um, I felt like all this pressure that was on me kind of had subsided. Uh, I felt excitement because I was thinking there's going to be a new life that I'm going to be able to have. And I'm kind of anxious and eager to want to, you know, get that started. So those are definitely some things that I, you know, quickly thought about after like, you know, praying that prayer and sitting there for a while. Um, it really wasn't much hopelessness or any of that kind of stuff left. And whether I was just tired of thinking about that or if I was just getting sleepy, I don't know, but I definitely felt excitement to start a new life. And I felt like this weight that was once on me, like really wasn't on me anymore. So there was a supernatural transformation happening right then and there, whether or not you fully comprehended all of that, what was going to, what that was going to mean. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I, I try not to, you know, well, I would say that, you know, salvation, I believe, isn't necessarily associated with the feeling, you know, because some people have some sort of supernatural feeling that takes place. And I believe some people don't, you know, and yep. in my experience, the ones that don't sometimes have a difficult time because they feel like since they did have it, it must not have taken place. And so I really don't try to stress that as much because I don't want to get anyone, you know, dismissing a real spiritual experience they may have had. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that that um, part of what I love to ask questions about as I interview people on this podcast is, is just how many different ways it does happen for mm -hmm. people and um, how mysterious God is in, in how he chooses to intervene and how he chooses to... Uh, to reach us. And I mean, when, when you talk about first day in prison and you're handed a track and here you're kind of off and running. So then you were just, you were still in jail, not in prison yet. Correct. So you were in the temporary housing. So did that, did you come across that man 
they gave you the tract again later or was it just while you were in jail there? Just while I was in jail, we had, uh, I had his contact information in the jail. So when I got to prison, I, you know, we wrote back and forth a few times. He ended up getting convicted, going to prison and we kept in touch loosely for a handful of years and he got a significantly less of a sentence than I had. So he got out way before me and uh, we got in connection after I got out and his life looked um, at that point very much different than the person I knew when I was in jail. Mm. So how many years did you spend in prison, Lewis? 15 and a half years. 15 and a half. How can, how would you describe what you did with that time? Man, how would I describe it? You know, I'm a pretty much like try to sum things up in one word type of guy. So I would say in a word, uh, amazing. Mm. It was a, it was an amazing time. Um, there was clearly much violence and all the things that come along with prison life. However, something that ran simultaneous to that and something that overshadowed that in my life greatly was God interacting and intervening in my life throughout all those years. And so that's where the awesomeness comes in there because there's nothing awesome about eating prison meals and, uh, you know, dealing with just ignorant people, whether it be inmates or staff. So none of that stuff's awesome. But the fact that God felt like he was literally right next to me pretty much the whole entire time, I've not encountered that since I've been out. Mm. So when you, when you describe that, God being next to you the whole time, was there a running conversation or what was that like? Yeah, um, I would say oftentimes there was. It wasn't like a continuous all day, every day thing. Um, back to that one initial question you asked me about um, any like religious experience or whatever as a child. I had a great grandmother that used to babysit me when I was little who was heavily involved in the church. And she like, she was an usher. And so we walk on a weeknight to her usher practice. And I was a little kid. I get there. I go to sleep when we got there, wake up when it was time to go. She never really talked much. To, I can't recall any time talking um, to me about God. And she was in her late sixties at this point. But one thing I remembered that stood out to me in the very beginning of when I started learning about God was there would be many times she'd be in the room by herself or she'd be in the room with me watching TV and she'd be like, I could hear her talking. And I just thought, hey, you know, grandma old, you know, she in her <laughs> mid to late 60s, she talking to herself, you know, her mind kind of going. And then when I read across that verse in uh, 1 Thessalonians, I think it's like 517, where it says pray without ceasing. I thought, wow, like, I bet you that might have been what she was doing because she wasn't crazy. She was real smart um, and with it. And so that, you know, that, that kind of put me in the mindset of pray without ceasing. What does that look like? I don't mm -hmm. think it's possible for us to be in a constant mode of prayer. But for me, what that means is to be thinking about God, be meditating on his word, taking Jesus with me everywhere I go. When I'm encountering a situation, consulting him on what I should say, what I should do. So that was kind of the mindset behind that verse for me. And so that's what it kind of looked like for me when I was in prison as I encountered people. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I would buy items from the commissary and I wouldn't say, okay, Jesus, should I get two Snickers or five Snickers? You know, it, that didn't happen like that often, but I may say, hey, like I got 50 bucks, you know, should I spend 25 or should I spend all 50? You know, things like that. So I was very um, much so trying to always 
bring him into my life because I believe he wants to be there with us every step of the way, all day, every day. Mm. So you spent 15 years in prison, but your sentence was life plus 100 years. What happened? Man, God. I mean, (laughs) my, my wife says I'm spoiled because God just does things for me, like for no apparent reason for us and also the fact that I don't deserve it. And so um, I, uh, even though I had that lengthy sentence um, in the state of Missouri where my crimes happened and where I was convicted and doing prison time, um, they have a numerical system that calculates those large sentences. And so after 13 years, mathematically in their system, I don't know much about it and I really don't care. There was a chance for me to go to see a parole board and every mm-hmm. state, every state doesn't have a parole board like Illinois doesn't have one. And so basically your life is kind of in their hands. They make all the decisions on like how much of a sentence they're going to want you to do. And if they have some mandatory things they want you to do while you're there, you don't have to do them. But if you want them to let you go, it would behoove you to do them. And so I went the first time and, and pretty much because I had given my life to Christ that first day, um, there was two things that I was um, really, really adamant about doing. One, it was learning about God and his word as much as I could. And two, it was committing myself to any type of programs that can help change my thinking and that I can learn how to like grow into being a man. And so I had poured myself into pretty much every program the prison offered. And because it was a prison in Missouri where they housed death row inmates and the worst of the worst inmates in the state, they didn't have a ton of programs because there weren't a lot of people going home. So it was like, Mm -hmm. why get a guy right mentally when he's never getting out. Um, so it wasn't a lot of programs, but I, I took all of them. I became a facilitator of most of them. And so I did pretty much all I could do. And it wasn't for the parole board. It was really for me trying to be a different man and to be a better man. And so I went to the parole board. It went really fast, which was unlike what people who had been before told me would be like. And it made sense because in my mind, they weren't going to let me go with only doing 13 years of a life sentence plus a hundred years and uh, six weeks came and I got an answer. And that answer was they were going to let me out in two and a half more years. Hmm. So all of a sudden, instead of thinking that you might be there forever, you say, Oh my gosh, I'm actually going to get out. Then what changed for you? Man. That's a great question. I mean, in order for me to have survived prison up until that point, number one, it was by the grace of God. You know, him having me be able to keep a right mind and and things like that. And then um, one decision that I made was that um, I couldn't live in two worlds at the same time. I couldn't live in the prison world and I couldn't live in the free world. And so I had pretty much turned the free world off, meaning I didn't really communicate with many people on the outside. And that was that was really um, easy for me to do because I didn't have a lot of people on the outside trying to communicate with me. So really, my choice in doing that was a coping mechanism that I created within myself, because before I got to that point, it really, really hurt my heart that the people that I was closest to, some family members and some friends, um, did not correspond back with me, um, you know, or when I wrote them, really write me back or accept my calls. And, 
you know, it was a hard pill for me to swallow. And I realized that I had made victims out of them, you know, and they were young and they were starting families and starting, you know, college and the things that I had wanted to do, but because of my ignorance and stupidity didn't do, I realized I can't blame them for them living their life. And if, if I wasn't a part of that life, then that was the decision I made because of the stupid stuff I did. And so I, that was the way for me to cope with that. So it was like cutting them off was really easy because they kind of, kind of in a sense, cut me off. Um, it just meant I would chase them and try to keep writing and keep calling. And so um, I was in this world of prison and that was my world and the outside world really didn't exist um, for real to me. And now that I'm going to get out and enter back into this world, it just kind of messed my mind up. I mean, I was super excited, but scared to death because I left that world at 19, um, having, you know, graduated high school about a year before, not being really skilled and knowledgeable in a lot of things um, academically and not being skilled and knowledgeable about anything as an adult. And now I'm going to get out as a 35 year old man. And I was fearful of that. Um, the world had changed a lot. People had changed a lot. Uh, but I was still excited. And I knew that God would still be there with me. And so I had to start dreaming again, you know, about what life would be like mm -hmm. on the outside, because I had basically stopped dreaming about that because it just hurt too much to think about what it could look like knowing that I, I would never get out. How did Julie, your wife, under the picture? Um, about the year 2003, um, I got a letter from someone in the mail one day and a, a mutual a friend of mine that had moved up to the Chicagoland area had took it upon himself to try to find a pen pal for me, which, hey, you know, what a friend, right? To try to find somebody to correspond with me. He didn't really understand and know that I wasn't like looking for that at all. I was trying to do my, my time. And uh, so he had asked a friend if she had some friends that would write to me. And she asked her friends and they all said no. And one day she ran across my address and decided that she would write. And so I get this letter in the mail. Um, I politely write back and kind of tell her, hey, I'm not really looking for a pen pal. Thank you for writing. <laughs> and, you know, she wrote me back again. I wrote her back and I was like, man, it's kind of cool, you know, and it was. And it wasn't that I really didn't want a pen pal. It was that I didn't want that heartache and pain that can come along with having a pen pal, whether it be a friend or more than a friend. I didn't really want any of it. And so um, letters turned into phone calls that turned into visits. And I would say from 2003 to about 2008, within about a year, year and a half of me getting out, uh, we had decided that, you know, we wanted to get married when I got out. Mm. And so I got out in August of 09 and we got married in September of 09, a little over a month after I got out. And uh, that's almost been 11 years ago. And so Julie is your wife and ministry partner as well. Yep. And she, and she started writing letters to you before she knew she, you were going to be released ever. Correct. And uh, that's just an amazing story. And what a partnership you have together. Yeah. Well, it's got its ups and downs for sure. But I've, what I've been told, all relationships do so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. But uh, what an interesting piece of the story. At some point in time, I think I want to interview Julie about... Uh, about that experience. Cause yeah, I mean, that, that cool. had to be an interesting trust walk on her end of the story too. It's probably one that not many people 
uh, ask about, because you share your testimony and your yeah. story a lot. Yeah, quite a, book, yeah quite, quite a few people do ask about it, you know, and you, when she's there, I usually just turn to her and let her go so I can kind of take a break for a minute. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I don't think she probably uh, saw herself, the turn of events coming uh, that were going to lead to that. But I'm sure glad that you two are together. That is a yeah. thing. So tell us about what you're doing now. What I'm doing now? Well, after I got well, out. And, okay, let, let, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, without COVID, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, let's go ahead and yep. start right after you get out. Well, yeah, after I got out, um, I started working for a coffee company that only were looking to hire ex-felons um, primarily. Um, that was an act of God, me meeting this gentleman and getting a job there. And then after about a year and a half working there, an opportunity came for me to work in prison ministry, which was the same prison ministry that I actually volunteered and worked for when I was in prison. Mm -hmm. And so that ministry was called Set Free Ministries. And uh, primarily what they do is they provide Bible courses free of charge to men and women um, and their families of um, who are incarcerated. So like I was incarcerated and my mother started taking courses. Uh, Julie wasn't a Christ follower. She didn't really have much of a church background. And me and other people in her life around the same time started talking to her about God and inviting her to church. And she ended up becoming a Christ follower around the same time she met me. And so she started taking courses. And so that's what we do. We provide the courses to men and women. So they get a course, they answer questions, they mail it back to us. We get them. We lead teams of volunteers who grade and comment on the essay questions. And then we send those answer sheets back to them so they can see the remarks they got on their essay questions, as well as the next book in the curriculum. And so that's one aspect of what we do. And that's primarily what Julie's involved in. It's all through the mail. She doesn't go in anywhere. And then me, um, I've been blessed with the opportunity to meet a lot of um, men and women who go into correctional facilities with me, mainly Cook County Jail and then the juvenile jail in Warrenville, Illinois. And so in the Cook County Jail, when we go, we had three time slots a week where we're planting Bible studies and maximum security units in Cook County Jail using these courses. And so instead of just through the mail, we have groups of guys and we get together and they do like a chapter or two for homework. The volunteers do the same thing. And then we just get together and we have a dialogue about these questions in the book just so we can dive deeper into whatever that topic is. And then in the juvenile jail, it's basically just like a youth group. We go in there, we play some games, play some sports, eat some snacks and talk about Jesus. There you go. And so you raise money for purchasing these books and to support your ministry and being able to do this full time. And then you've also got a new uh, vlog, which is going to be turning into a podcast. Say a few words about that. Yeah, well, um, just because I like to talk a lot, and I guess there's a few people that say, man, we like we like hearing you. Um, why don't you do something like a, a vlog or a podcast or something like that? And so the pandemic came, and it pretty much shut every – I mean, it did pretty much – it shut everything down except through the mail stuff, and it really shut me down. And so since March, um, I've been sitting around. But right around that time, I had been thinking about doing something like this and I was talking to a real good friend and brother about wanting to do it, but not really knowing how. And then having to, you know, have, I mean, you could have equipment, not have equipment, have expensive equipment, have less expensive equipment. And he was like, look, 
you find all the good stuff that you need to get this stuff done. He was one of the guys that say, I love for you to do some video stuff. And so he wrote me a check and said, here you go, get the stuff that you need to get. So I went and got all the stuff around um, April. And then it was a quest and journey to learn how to operate mics, lights, cameras, and then edit all of that stuff, which I'm still learning. But that's kind of the evolution of doing ministry in a different way. And the, the cool thing about it is really the idea behind the videos wasn't as much for out here in the real world as it is for people in jail and prison. Because now I bought a DVD burner and I can burn these videos into DVDs and send them to different jails and prisons all across the country. And a lot of prisons have an institutional channel where they show like movies, they may put the menu and any other kind of announcements the prison has for the inmates. They can turn on this channel like a channel three or something like that. They also can play these DVDs, just put them on a loop, um, you know, one day a week or however they choose. And now everybody in the prison who wants to can turn to that, that channel and actually watch the, the video. So that's like me going into a place. I'm only one person. And if like 20 people comes to a Bible study, that's it. Now the whole institutions would have access to see stuff. And so that's the biggest thing I'm really excited about. And I throw it up on YouTube and that doesn't cause me anything. And if people out here are interested in seeing and hearing this stuff, they can. So how can people find out more about you and support you? Um, right now, because of my lack of social media uh, knowledge, you can look me up on Facebook, just Lewis Dooley. I don't even know how to tell you to find me on YouTube because the name of my channel is That's Fire. But if you type that in, it's not going to take you to my channel. So I'm trying to meet with some social media people that can get me kind of tied all my Instagram and everything. If you look up Lewis Dooley, um, you'll see a picture of me on there, which I realize you won't see me right now. But if you look up on the about me, hopefully you'll see some stuff, maybe some video postings. That's fire under my name. That's well, we'll the right person. in the show notes too. Oh, okay. So, right. so people can look in our show notes to get to your YouTube channel and yeah. to your Facebook and to your, because um, you have a website too, right? Yeah, lewisdooley.com. Which there you go. I got to get that updated with my stuff too. I'm, like I said, man, this is like, it's, it's like trying to like do like Russian or Chinese language for me. It's whole. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. But Louis, I'm just so thankful that you joined me today in this conversation. And I am... Um, I'm always excited to hear what God is up to in the midst of your life. And that's fire is a, uh, is something that you say every once in a while, but the kind of energy that you bring to life. And uh, also Lewis and I have played pickleball together and uh, uh, he learned pickleball in a different place than I did with a little bit more intensity <laughs> than a lot of other people play. Yeah, so, prison, prison pickleball, nothing like it. Yeah, it, it's got a little, uh, it's got a little um, uh, uh, energy burn off uh, that comes with that. And so that's been really fun because we kind of came across each other at a place we mutually play um, yep. along with my husband. And we just, it, it just been so much fun when we have a chance to do that. So hopefully we'll be playing some more pickleball soon. Amen. So, yeah. So in any case, um, please look at the show notes, 
And I want you to find Lewis and uh, find ways to listen in and support and share. And also, if you've got a podcast and you're listening to this, invite Lewis on to, uh, to be your guest as well. His story uh, is an amazing God thing. And uh, once again, it's Prison Saved My Life. I recommend it for everyone. And uh, people can get it on Amazon, right? Yep, they can get it on Amazon. They can get it on emailsworldwide.org as well. So Okay, good deal. We'll put all of it in the show notes to make sure that you can get in touch. So many blessings, Dooley. Thank you very much, Sharon. It's been Lewis a blessing. Dooley. Yes. <laughs> many. A... <laughs> <laughs> right at the end of the podcast, let me do that. <laughs> it's been a many blessing. blessings, Lewis Dooley. That's what I meant to say. And uh, all of you listeners just... Thanks so much for your time. Uh, and with One Life Maps, you know, we've got some upcoming events. Check out the homepage on the website at onelifemaps.com and listen to this trailer and uh, you'll find out a little bit more about what we do with helping people map their life story. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by onelifemaps.com, creators of unique visual life mapping materials titled Listen to My Life, maps for recognizing and responding to God in my story. Go to onelifemaps.com to purchase your Listen to My Life portfolio of visual life maps. While you're there, check out our upcoming virtual coaching groups, live workshops, and options for you to facilitate the Listen to My Life experience with others. That's onelifemaps.com. O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S.com. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. You can help support this podcast and the work of One Life Maps by supporting us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash onelifemaps to pledge $5 or more per month and get weekly audio meditations to help you recognize and respond to God in your story. Thank you for tuning in to the One Life Maps podcast. Until next time, make the most of this one life that you've been gifted. Thank you.